see things differently and to make changes was what fascinated me. And you and your husband have this wonderful catalog of films. And even when I was actually reexamining them, I was thinking, wow, we as a society are still grappling with a lot of the things that come up in these films. I did want to start off with talking about three of the films, personal faves of mine. I want to start with Who Remembers Mama? How did that film come about? And I believe that was one of y'all's first films. Is that correct? It was the first film. I had done a film and Alan was a filmmaker and he was working at KERA. And I had actually done a film with a group of people. It was actually a video using port pack video about housing and redlining in Dallas. And I was at a uh, Vivian Castleberry had from the Dallas Times Herald had invited me to a, a woman's group. Uh, where she uh, had a, a whole group of women come every year to the Times-Herald. And I met this woman who was talked about um, that she had been married for like 30 or 40 years, and her husband walked in one day and left her and, and divorced her. Actually, he didn't walk in. He left her with five kids it didn't, and in a new city. And there she talked about the politics of it. Um, not just her story. And I thought it was really fascinating what she said, because it was all these feminist values that came together at one time. It was, you know, women, it was ageism, it was the way the government and, and policies looked at women and treated women, and the rights that women did not have. And so we started talking, we became friends, and I started, and it, I found out that what happened to her, that she was there was a name put on her dilemma, and that was displaced homemakers, and that there were a lot of displaced homemakers around, and it was a it became a national group, and I thought this would make a wonderful book, but then I thought it would make a good film, and I wrote a proposal, and I read, was able to raise money from the Texas Committee for the Humanities as a matching grant, and then KERA gave me Alan as their producer, and they gave me in-kind equipment and editing facilities and everything like that. Ironic, as a married couple, our first film was about divorce. And so <laughs> I, I love I that film. I loved working on it. I love that it was uh, being used to show politicians. The White House actually brought the film and not me, but Charlotte Stewart, the woman who was a displaced homemaker, who was a consultant, and then she found work in the displaced homemakers movement. They brought her to Washington and they showed that film and they were able to actually change legislation or pass legislation for women. So I, you know, I saw that it did have an impact. National PBS said, turned it down because they said it was only a Tex a Dallas problem or a Texas problem that men were leaving their women their 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 wives, and so um, my mother started a letting my mother who was happily married started a letter writing campaign, which all these different women's organizations took up, and then we got it nationally on PBS. <clears throat> but it wasn't just thrown up there. There was a fabulous outreach program with it and a lot of publicity with that film. So that film really had an impact, and it reached a lot of people in very positive ways. And so I was then hooked on making film. It's such a powerful medium because it gives a way of someone really 
I mean, you can't fully ever completely step in someone's shoes, but at least it gives a glimpse and makes you really think about that and what that person is experiencing and then kind of makes you reflect about whether something is right or wrong and then what can you do in your own corner to make a change. Well, you can use it for calls for call to action and, you know, you, the personal stories. And that's what I found is, you know, you have to give people some statistics so that there's, you know, they believe you about an issue, but it's the personal stories that touches, that touch people's hearts and their souls. That's what motivates and moves people. And you can do that so well with film. That's why I like film. Speaking of motivating and having people see someone else's perspective, then my next film I wanted to bring up is The Ladies' Room. I love oh. The Ladies' Room. <laughs> can you tell me about that and how did that come about? Okay, so I've always been fascinated with women talking in ladies' rooms. I mean, and also the conversations are totally bizarre, but they're also totally real. And the we had Al and I have been working on a few very, very heavy films. And I said, I just needed something fun. Well, and something to do and and we needed I needed something that was mine, that we weren't working together. We just needed, you know, that little space. And he, he was working on research. I think he was working on researching a film about what he wanted to do, which was with the Peace Corps, because he was in the Peace Corps. And so I started just taking a camera, a little video camera, and sometimes another woman go with me, that we would just set up in ladies' rooms and capture the conversations. And it was really interest, so interesting because we would go to all these different ladies' rooms. I mean, I've been to ladies' rooms in the library, uh, in um, the Dallas Museum of Art, at uh, events. I think we were at a rodeo. I mean, there were all these different ladies' rooms, but it's, it's that women talk so differently, I mean, than men. I mean, we just relate to each other differently, and we talk to each other differently than men talk and so it's a, it's a real, it's, it's, it, you know, no matter what you do, you can't, a woman can't do something that's just really lightweight. They have to do something that says everything we do is something, you know, it, it has, has meaning to it. So I really, really love that film. And I would do it a lot on the weekends. And my friends started saying, you've got to start coming, you know, to our hat. Cause we would, we had a group of people we would go to each other's homes on the weekends and I was and I was like in the ladies' room filming, but it was the film really shows how women relate to each other and how we care about each other. Um, there was one that was at the Fairmount where some woman came out and she she was didn't know whether to break up with her boyfriend and she's crying and these women are giving her just the worst. I wanted to scream, like, don't give her that advice. But they really cared about her. They, you know, they wanted to comfort her. They didn't want her to leave the premises feeling badly about them herself. So I think there's a camaraderie that, that women have. At a showing of the ladies' room, a man came over to Alan and he said, we have to, I'll film it, we have to go into the men's room. And they, I said, oh, this all should be interesting. And they did. And they weren't there very long. I said, yeah, you have a very short film. <laughs> they said, nobody talked to each other. And so men 
don't didn't talk. I said, well, I was not in the men's room, so I don't know what they do in there. It shows, I think, you know, people laugh about it because, you know, you have a film about the women in the ladies' room. But I think it shows a lot about women. And I, I'm a feminist, and I love, I love showing women, you know, in a good light. Not as a documentary filmmaker, that doesn't always happen. But I did have, I did film a place. It was Sue Ellen's uh, gay bar meeting place in Oak Lawn, and in Dallas. The, in Dallas, and it was. Um, I have some film from some women there, but there was one woman who was so she was. So totally real, and she was, she, and it was a very powerful what she, what she was saying and to someone, but she was drunk, mm. and she and everybody signed releases when they left, so and I, she signed a release, but I, it would have made the film more powerful mm-hmm. because she had some truths that she was saying, but I couldn't show her. I, I, as a filmmaker, I thought that that you don't do that to somebody. I mean, people trust you with them, their stories, and she m- might have felt okay signing that release, but I still felt like she had too much to drink, and maybe if she had been sober, she would not have wanted to see herself in film that way. So I didn't, I didn't include it. I think I would love to hear your thoughts about that vulnerability as a documentary filmmaker because there's this interesting connection you make because I mean these are real people these are not from a script that's not a made up scenario like these and, and exactly what you said they're entrusting you with their story and that's really powerful and very vulnerable right and and I've seen filmmakers do hatchet jumps I mean I've seen a film where people are saying don't film me don't film me and it's in the film that's just not right, you know. So um, I, I feel like no, even if it's fabulous, it's there's you have to have ethics and you have to you have to respect people, and it's a certain respect that you have for, for another human being. The next film I wanted to talk about was Sisters of Seventy Seven. So oh. many people have forgotten about the National Women's Conference, which was a federally funded event. What was the conference, and what were the first steps to, you took to capture that historical gathering? Okay, so this is an interesting story because it was part of the International Women's Year. Just everybody, think of the government funding a women's conference today. And every state had to elect, you had delegates that went to this conference, and every state elected their delegate. And just think about how that would go today, Okay. I mean, oh, my gosh. (laughs) Uh, And I actually drove down there because I I was in Dallas, and and everybody in Dallas, everybody in Texas knew about all the women did. And it was in Houston, correct? It was in Houston. And my sister flew from Baltimore with her her son. He was like three or four. And I took my – I think Fanya was – my daughter was like five or six. And we drove down there, and I was a torchbearer. So there was a there was actually a relay from Seneca Falls where the first women's conference was, uh, and we did a film about that. Uh, we did a film called Dreams of Equality. It was in 1848. It was the first women's conference, and there was a relay of this torch all the way from Seneca Falls to Houston. So I ran I ran in that race, and it wasn't a, it was just a relay. It wasn't really a race. The torch, while it looks beautiful, is really heavy. 
and it smells horrible from the smoke and the gas or what going the hot was going down my arm and I told my sister I said you're going to have to follow me to, and you know just follow me and she said I don't know how to drive a stick shift and we're out in the country somewhere and I said put your foot on the gas and the other foot on the clutch and just go <laughs> figure it out <laughs> so, and I guess that's what women do I mean that that should be a t-shirt <laughs> figure it out <laughs> so I was, I didn't, I, I remember that vividly. I remember, you know, the conference. I remember we had just finished Who Remembers Mama, and I had flyers, and I remember all the booze, and I remember, you know, you know some of the, you know, going through the hotels and, and everybody. I wasn't a delegate, and I didn't do the film then. I was asked to do the film by the Women's Museum. We're trying to honor the founders of the Women's Museum and they wanted, who were part of that conference. And so Alan and I did this film. And, and Fanya worked on it. Our daughter worked on it. And so we just did uh, Texas Women. And after the film, the Women's Museum didn't want the film. They, oh. they showed it at this event and they didn't want it. And they said I could, they gave me the rights. I could do anything I wanted with it. And there was a, we were editing another film at a company called CRM, and Ed Delaney was in charge there, and he said, let's take that film and make it into something really big. I want a legacy. Very I cool. want to do a legacy. And this is a man, so I just want to say that. And we, he, he gave us the, the, the money and everything, and another editor to take that film to go and interview Gloria Steinem and to interview Betty Friedan, Carmen de la Guardia. I'm messing up her name. I'm sorry. But a few other people and to also get more footage because you have to pay for the footage and to really do a bigger job than what we had done. And that became Sisters of 77. And it, the film was first called Spirit of 77 because it, there was so much spirit in the women's spirit. But when we got accepted by uh, Independent Lens to air it nationally, we had to negotiate a contract and we were good at really negotiating everything that we, we wanted. And the one thing they wanted was the name change and they gave us a list of names and women change their names all the time. So <laughs> why not a film? They were right. Sisters of 77 really says it. And um, so it changed its name to Sisters of 77. I, I bowed to Ed. He passed away. He, he had a legacy, and that was his legacy because that film is in almost every women's studies department in every college. We work real hard to get our films out. That's, we're, I'm with a nonprofit organization, Media Projects, and Al and I not only produce, but we distribute our films. If we, you believe believe in the film, you have to make it work to make sure that people see it. So it's been shown nationally on TV. It's been in lots of women's conferences. It is, you know, it's a film that has many discussion guides and educational material around it. So I, and I love that film because I was there. I was there. It's part of my, it was part of my history. And I was able to, we were able to interview one of the runners and uh, Peggy Kaplan is a good friend of mine now. And so, yeah, it was, 
it was a wonderful experience, and uh, we were able to take our daughter along on a lot of the interviews, and she's a filmmaker in her own right, so she got to sit um, on the floor at Betty Friedan's feet and hear all Betty's stories and to meet her. Uh, she didn't get to meet Gloria, but she did meet Betty. That's amazing. And just thinking about how nice it is for you to have gotten to have been a participant and be there very present, but then also again get to go back and revisit what all that meant. Right, right. And I remember the footage that was being shot because I knew the camera people. Oh, of course. A lot of them were from PBS and I knew them and I remember where they were standing. And so I knew what to look for. Also, I think you went to the Women's March that happened in 2017. Is that correct? And yes, and I did a little film about it. I'm just curious, and having experienced, having been at both of those very monumental events, did you kind of feel the same kind of that spirit of just, we're going to have something to say? The spirit was there, but it was a one-day event. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're marching. What is interesting is that the women's conference in Houston they really worked hard on on setting the agenda for the women's movement. So they were setting agendas and policies. These weren't just liberal women. You know, they were fighting. They had all different kinds of politics. It was very diverse in race, ethnicity, age group. The topics were so diverse, reproductive rights and lesbian rights. I mean, there was insurance. Right. It was a huge, huge plank of articles that they were going through, and they had committees that were hashing out what they were going to vote on, and they voted as a body, and they voted for the ERA, which we still, ladies, please think of that. If we had the ERA today, we wouldn't have to be confronting some of the problems that we're confronting today. It's not a panacea, but we need that ERA. As Liz Carpenter said, before I die, just give me three more states. <laughs> right. Have it be voted on by the, each state, and it failed by by a couple. So. Yeah, and Liz Carpenter was a famous speechwriter here in Texas and a communications expert. Right, mm-hmm. right. We're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. Hi, everyone. This is Erin. Have you heard of Creative Live? Creative Live is an incredible online learning platform that offers courses in all kinds of subjects, photography, self-improvement, art, writing, and web design, to name a few. I have personally taken several courses, such as A Brand Called You with Debbie Millman and Workflow, Time Management, and Productivity for Creatives with Lisa Congdon. And I plan to take even more courses in writing, networking, and video production. If you've ever wanted to pursue a creative outlet, I highly recommend taking a look at Creative Live. It's a great way to improve your craft and broaden your knowledge. Girls That Create is part of the Creative Live affiliate program, which means if you click on the link in the show notes and purchase a course, we'll receive a small affiliate commission. Thank you for supporting us. She is brave. She is bold. She is you. And we want to tell your story. Are you ready to share your journey with us on Word of Mom Radio? Go to wordofmomradio.com and register as a guest. We want to tell your story because when you win, we all win. Unsilenced Voices has been working diligently in Ghana, Sierra Leone, Rwanda, and the USA to combat domestic violence, sexual abuse, and human trafficking. We currently have over 50 young girls on a wait list in Sierra Leone to go through a vocational training program 
to get them off the streets and out of harm's way. We have gifted over $33,000 to U.S. survivors and are looking for volunteers and donors to help us continue our cause. Please visit us at www.unsilencedvoices.org. Again, unsilencedvoices.org for more information. Don't let the name fool you. Stadiumbags.com is not just for sports fans. Our clear bags make it easier for you to get into any venue that you go to. And in today's world where we are so concerned about germs, the materials that our bags are made with are strong enough to stand up to the solvents that you can use to clean your bag so you know you come home safely. So check out stadiumbags.com. You'll see why we are the clear choice, because safety, it's in the bag. And we're back with the Girls That Create podcast on Word of Mom Radio. My guest today is filmmaker Cynthia Salzman-Mondell. Is there another film in your catalog that you would like to highlight? I know we talked about those three, but is there another one that really speaks to your heart? Well, they all do. I mean, they're all like, it's sort of like children asking you what's your, what your favorite film is. I mean, we've done a film, you know, as a Jewish woman, we did a film on anti-Semitism in Europe, which is, you know, a huge problem today in America for different reasons than it is in Europe. It's still some of the basic reasons. I finished a film right before COVID called In Her Shoes about women who are incarcerated at the Dallas County Jail who were in art class who looked at their lives through the shoes that they wore and are wearing, and they came to terms with the sex abuse and violence and trauma in their lives. And that film has been shown at Columbia University, criminal justice conferences. It was recently shown by the um, in Texas uh, by several groups to leg- state legislators. It's been TWU had a whole month that it showed the film, UTD. In, te- in Texas, it's been like, UTD and SMU, but it's been at Tufts University, Boston University. So the film, it really humanizes women in prison, and it talks about some of the same problems that women have, but it also highlights the mental health problems that women have who are incarcerated, and there's such a need for them to have programs to help them with those mental health issues. So I have a real commitment in getting that film out and also shows the power of art. So it has a lot of layers. Yeah, I don't think people realize when you are you're in prison is that you're issued. Everyone has the same shoes. There is no unique identity. There is no expression. Everyone's issued the same basic uniform to wear. And about how that can make someone feel suddenly like a little piece of you, you ways of expressing yourself are suddenly stripped away. And then through your project and through getting to revisit that and how can they show they're still them, they're still a person, they still have hopes and dreams and desires. And they, you know, are working through such challenging, horrendous situations that they've got to push through. And I love that you're highlighting that and showing, again, that there needs to be healing and there needs to be attention to the mental health of having lived through those experiences and why that can't just be ignored. Exactly. Before you finish a film, you say it's finished, you bring people in. And it was pretty much finished, but there were some people from the Dallas County Jail who came in. It was mostly women, and this was one burly man, and I went, oh, my God, why him? (laughs) 
and I was thinking, oh, this is okay. Just take a deep breath. He's and he was squirming around in his seat and everything during it. I said, it's only an hour. I'm talking to myself. You can live through this. And afterwards, he was the one that was moved the most. I, I mean, they were all moved, but he, he could hardly talk. And he, I realized he had been crying. Mm-hmm. And he said, I've worked with these women for over. 25 years and I never looked at them like this which said a whole lot you become numb in you know in your job but it was like he had an understanding so the film so I felt if he said that that film can touch so many people that can make a difference in their lives whether it's a guard who has been hardened or if it's a somebody who's arresting them just on a small level but hope it can make some sort of changes in the laws and the programs that are offered. And with Columbia University, they used it for abolition. They don't believe in prison. I don't know how I feel about that, you know, I, but it was the first time I had been exposed to abolition. It, that was very interesting. I mean, I definitely think that so many of these women do not need to be in prison, that they need, you know, other kinds of help so they can come out and um, and be productive citizens. And if somebody's out there saying, well, they deserve it, nobody said they didn't deserve it. So that's another thing. I mean, they took responsibility for what they did. It's just what got them there. And it's all, it's another thing because I have a shoe project. This started from another project that, Erin, you were working on with me called Soul Sisters about women's identity with their shoes. Then uh, that film is being edited now. It's another women's film about the power of women, the power of this accessory, the shoe, and what it means to women. Right, because if you look, just taking an array, look at a very a women's footwear can tell you a lot about who they are, what they're doing, what their goals are, what you know, maybe the life that they're living, what you know that entails for their day to day, and it's kind of fascinating when you start thinking about the stories that shoes contain. Right, and how they make women feel, mm-hmm. and how it changes you, who you, you know, what they feel like or give them power. It's very interesting. And I'll just tell one little story about in her shoes. One that you talked about, they all are issued the same uniform as well as they're issued Crocs in the Dallas jail. And one woman of where she was, she had black Crocs. Everybody had black Crocs, but she found somebody who had blue Crocs her right shoe, her right black croc for a blue croc. So she was wearing a black croc left and a blue croc right. She said it gave her something to hold on to her identity. A little boost. Yeah. Why are you so passionate about independent filmmaking? Well, I guess I haven't really thought about that, but I think that if I had to do a film, I've done films for people, you know, or for companies. And I can remember some of the wonderful things, stories that we did that were left out and what we weren't able to do. So when you're an independent, you still have to make certain editing decisions if you're trying to get it on broadcast. But as an independent, you can put in, you can be creative, political, whatever you want to do. You're, you don't have anybody over you telling you you can't do it. I've never been good at somebody telling me I can't do something. (laughs) And speaking of when you make a film for someone else, I know that y'all made the films that are actually in the Sixth Floor Museum here in Dallas, Texas. 
And the Sixth Floor Museum chronicles the assassination and legacy of President John F. Kennedy. How did that come about? How did you come involved with that project? Because every time I take visitors through that museum, I am always blown away. And the films play such a huge piece of that experience every time I go. We had to compete for that project. We competed with all these different filmmakers. And we, I remember going there, you know, for the interview and seeing all these people around and saying, Alan, I really wanted this project. Alan went to the Peace Corps because of John Kennedy. I come from a very a liberal Democratic family, so John Kennedy, the man, you know, and everybody was devastated when he was killed. And Alan never saw any of the footage. He was in Africa when that happened. So he, he didn't see any of the footage. I remember some of the footage when we were looking for the footage. But we really, really wanted that project. We really worked hard in figuring out what it was they wanted and what the public would want. We were given pretty much free range. I think they did hire an executive producer to make sure that we weren't too liberal Democrats doing this the truth. And we were told that the only thing that we couldn't do was they didn't want the headshot. Oh, sure. Because kids were look, going to be watching it. So that was the only thing that we couldn't do. And we really worked hard. We knew how to research. And I've done archival film. We're really good researchers. We know where to look. And nobody had seen a lot of that footage. I mean, it had been put away since the 60s. And so we were really lucky. We got a lot of footage. We got CBS worked with us, the Kennedy Library. Got you know, we were we were in Boston, we were in New York, we were in other places. People said, Oh, I have stuff, followed every lead that we could. And I just I mean, that project meant a lot to us. And I, we were really aware of the weight was on our shoulders because it's interesting. It was not it was mostly a lot of Democrats but also Republicans, but a lot of Republicans were responsible for maintaining that building mm. and, and making that into a museum. But it was bipartisan, but it, a lot of Republicans were responsible, and I give them a lot of credit for that because that I think that museum is very important. It's, it's even more important today when you're talking about the kind of politics that we're facing today, and you're talking about preserving democracy at a time when, you know, you didn't know whether it was going to be preserved. We worked hard on that, and we loved every minute of it. I think the other, the other thing is I think people, a lot of filmmakers came in and thought they could knock it off in a couple of months. I think we spent 14 or 16 months on that project. Oh, wow. Yeah. We devoted ourselves, and we had some people who wouldn't talk to us. Mm. We were ostracized a little bit. Yeah, but, they get... I mean, if you live in Dallas and you kind of pay attention to some of our history, you understand that, you know, after that happened, there was this real shame that kind of hung really thick over the city for many years after that happened. Yeah. And the Sixth Floor Museum, I feel, personally feel, it was a healing place that has helped bring people together and reevaluate, well, this did happen, and we do need to acknowledge it, and we need to think about it that this happened and what was all going on during that time period and how did this event shape our history forever? No, it's, that's very true. And as a filmmaker, it was a very unusual project to work on because we worked as a team. I mean, Conover Hunt was in charge of the team and she worked with a woman named Linda Lynn Adams. 
two women. Okay. It was Barbara Charles and her husband who did the whole exhibit. It was a real, real team effort. It was great being part of that team. So you are a founding member and past president of Women in Film Dallas. I would love to hear your thoughts about why it's essential for filmmakers to find or start a community that can support them. I think it's really hard being a woman in film. I remember little things. People would always ask Alan about the technicals. I'm the one who knew all the technical stuff. I still do. And what's wonderful, my relationship with my husband, who's my partner, is that there's never any ego. If they want to put his name first, it's fine. If they want to put my, we never have any ego. So there's never been ego fights as like there are with other partners. If you want to give him credit, fine. Just so that it gets out. I don't care. But on a set and you're doing it and men treat you differently. My feeling is if you treat me differently, I sign the paycheck, you know, or coming out of our you know, out of media projects, you you leave, you know, so it's not many women have that. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is hard. I mean, they're, they're turned, you know, they're sexually harassed. They have to kowtow to men, even at festivals, you know, you see these guys walk in with the, women get all dressed up or they look nice, you know, in an arty way. And the men, they have their gimme caps on and they have them turned backwards. They have their sloppy T-shirts on, you know, and they think they they can strut in and command. And women have harder obstacles to overcome. And so it is very important to have a community to help women and for women to be supportive of other women, just to give them the courage and the confidence to pursue what they're pursuing. When Women in Film was forming, I was delighted to be part of it, and I was It was Betty Buckley who brought it to Dallas, and I was one of the founding members. But it was Betty who was the founder. And I I served on a lot of committees. And today, if anybody's listening, women, I'm, I'm also a member of Women in Film in New York. Had a lot in common with the women, more documentary filmmakers there. And during COVID, you were able to have a dull membership, and they had a lot of programs on Zoom. And I really enjoyed it, and I enjoyed meeting the women there. So it it served my purpose. Yeah, I think it's important now, as we now have all these wonderful tools that let us connect with people from everywhere. Nothing beats the in-person connection. That's something just joyful about seeing someone in person and getting to see expressions and body language and just being in that environment with them. But at the same time, to be able to connect with someone in New York when you live in Dallas or you live in L.A. or Chicago or even right. a small rural town, the fact that you can reach out and find people to bounce ideas off and talk about things and, you know, share, you know, common interests is really something special. Right. right. It really is. And for women, I think we need those communities and we need those contacts to help us through. And it is, uh, I hate to say it, but it's this filmmaking business, you know, has been sexist. So. Small progress. Small. Very <laughs> small. a lot of progress. <laughs> it's getting better. <laughs> I mean, it's, but there's been progress. At least, I, I mean, I, I slowly but surely, but then the research comes out and then I get kind of grumps again because it's obviously very small and slow. <laughs> right. So I also belong to the Dallas Producers Association. I'll never forget this. Came in, you know, when there was meet and greet, you know, and I, and I was a speaker. I was one of the main speakers on the panel. And I was talking to somebody, and I was interested in what he was doing. I don't know, but he treated me terribly. 
And most of the people knew me, so they didn't. So we all sat down, and then, I, and then they called the meeting to order. And, you know, I got up to speak, and I could see this guy's face go, he just completely dropped. Never wanted to talk to him again. But it's, it's that you're a woman, and you probably don't have much to offer is what mm-hmm. they probably thought. Yeah. Which is the life lesson of never count anybody out who you're talking to. Never. Treat everyone the same, like you want to be treated. Never. I mean, Stanley Marcus had something. I mean, he, he used to tell people to anybody who walks in this store is a potential customer and you treat them. I don't care if they are wearing dirty jeans that just came out of the oil well with money in their pockets. <laughs> Or a mink coat. Yeah. <laughs> you probably have a lot of bills to pay. They can't. <laughs> what advice would you give to girls who are dreaming of becoming filmmakers? It's much easier today to tell your story because everybody has a camera in their pocket if you have a phone. So you can just try to film with your phone. And if you don't have a phone, you have pictures on the internet that you can try to put together and you can record your voice onto a computer and just try to practice your storytelling there. My grandson, no, seven, I think he was, he got a logo and he's doing horrible YouTube stuff. I mean, just horrible, like, what's up, what's up? You know, he says that about 10 times, but he's practicing his storytelling. And so it's practicing your storytelling and then seeing what your passion is and, and what story you want to tell and not being afraid to fail. Because if you don't fail, you won't learn. I mean, nobody wants to fail, but, you know, when you make mistakes, you learn from them. So that's the advice I would give. And why should parents and caregivers encourage storytelling in their kids? I think it's a way for them to emotionally express themselves. It's important that if they make up a fiction, they're putting themselves in as the character. If they're telling real stories, it's something for you to listen to. I mean, I wish I knew the stories from my family. When I'm doing some of these west of Hester Street about, and we were collecting stories from Jewish families around the state. I mean, I turned to Alan and I said, I know more about other people's families than I know about my own. So to encourage that, that you collect the stories is, is important because it, it bodybuilding your your soul it's in your character and there's some comfort in it finding out who you are and who you want to be or who you don't want to be <laughs> right and we, all, we all have people in our families that we don't want their stories <laughs> or we keep the story just as a reminder <laughs> or it's more of to say don't end up like just make choices better than you know cousin right. Fred over there right <laughs> You have a whole bunch of cousins over there. But then I have a lot of cousins over here that I actually really, really love, and I love their stories. Stories are powerful. Yeah. Cynthia Salzman Mondell, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. I can't believe it's over. (laughs) But I really enjoy talking to you, and there are so many more films like that film on depression and suicide called A Reason to Live that I'd love to come back and, and tell you about. Absolutely. And we will have links to Cynthia's website and the films and the show notes. So till next time, thank you so much. To all of you tuning in, thank you for joining us on the Girls That Create podcast on Word of Mom Radio. Make some time this week to support an independent filmmaker and let their work move you. Here's our closing theme song by Smith Sisters and the Sunday Drivers. Till next time, this is Aaron Prather Stafford. 
University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu visit. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.